welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Um, Good morning. Welcome along to Gateway. So glad you're here with us. Um, Last Sunday morning, I started a really short series. It's just going to be four messages in it. I did two of them last Sunday morning. I'm going to do one this morning this morning, obviously, and then again this evening. And the series is called It Ain't Necessarily So. Um, The series derives its name from a song that was written by George and Ira Gershwin in an opera that they call Porgy and Bess. And um, this particular song, It Ain't Necessarily So, is sung by a character in the opera, and in in it he's expressing his doubts about some of the statements and stories that are found in the Bible. And uh, the lines go, the things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. Now, I grabbed that, that, um, those lines just to, to hang this really short series on, because what I want to do is look at some things that are widely believed in Christian circles, things that amount to unchallenged truisms and what I call urban legends then are stories or concepts that get passed around as facts and they get accepted without question, they get passed on, they have a habit of taking on a life of their own, but actually when you look at them, they ain't necessarily so. And as I said last week in introducing it, it probably wouldn't matter so much if these urban legends were relatively harmless misunderstandings. But in truth, they can amount to dangerous errors when we build our lives on them. And then when they crash, they leave us with heartache and disillusionment that oftentimes is the reason people leave faith and leave God altogether. So last week we talked about the nature of faith And then in the evening service, I talked about that truism that's so popularly um, grasped in our culture, comes from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, judge not that ye be not judged. And our culture, our postmodern, non-judgmental, tolerant culture has picked that up and has made it to say that we should never, ever uh, judge anybody else. And um, I I wanted to challenge that as as an urban legend. Now, the Bible doesn't say that we shouldn't judge. Actually, the words of Jesus in Matthew, in John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, judge and judge righteous judgment. So here's Jesus' words on the one hand, judge not that you be not judged, and on the other hand, when you judge, judge righteously. And so I unpack that whole idea of um, the reality is we are called to judge. We are called to discern. We've got to discern spiritual fruit. We've got to discern spiritual truth from error in that same passage, dogs from swine, you know, don't throw your pearls before swine. Well, you've got to make some kind of judgments as to what constitute dogs and swines. The issue in the scripture is not that we should never judge, but the manner in which, the spirit by which we actually make these kinds of calls. So I unpacked that last week. Um, This week, I want to take my life in my own hands and talk about the fact that everything happens for a reason. By that, people mean a God reason, okay? Whatever happens, you've got to believe that God's in it, God's behind it. Now, that widespread assumption tends to be highlighted in moments of tragedy or difficulty. And I don't know how many of you have had the experience of having a very difficult thing happen to you, and very sincere and very kind people 
often trying to bring comfort, come to you. Um, it might be the death of a loved one. It could be a tragic divorce. It could have been a diagnosis that causes your world to crash in upon itself. It could be a financial reversal that throws your world and future plans to the wind. And people come up to you and they say, you know what, God is up to something. Um, by that, they mean this is a blessing in disguise. And they'll say things like, it's really good to know that everything happens for a reason, a God reason. God works everything for good. And the implication is, it is really good what's happened. You just can't see it yet. Or the classic, it must have been meant to be. We don't understand it at the moment, but it must have been meant to be. Now, I'm sure that some of you who are listening to me are already perplexed and saying, and your point is? Like, I mean, don't you believe, Don, that God is in control? You, you do believe that he's over all, above all, and behind all, don't you? What on earth, in what you've just said, are you suggesting is the urban myth? And if you're from a reformed persuasion, this talk might prove to be a bit disconcerting to you, perhaps even heretical. And if you aren't sure what a reformed persuasion is, don't worry about it, it'll come clear as we go along. Nearly the whole evangelical community are deeply committed to the notion that God is absolutely sovereign, and I include myself in that, okay? I too believe that. However, what we're not agreed upon is what that sovereignty looks like and how it's worked out in our world. Now, the reformed section of the evangelical community would want to say that God's sovereign eternal decrees are the reasons behind the way things work out in our world. That God, before the world was created, eternally decreed how things would work out. That he's absolutely sovereign and in control. So that everything that happened has its origins in these eternal decrees that God made before the foundation of the world. And it's that that I want to say is not necessarily so. I was thinking about this this morning and thinking, I'm glad I put in the word, it ain't necessarily so. Because it gives some wriggle room, okay? And I realize that there'll be people who will say, well, you know what, after that talk, Don, your talk ain't necessarily so. And I'm still committed to the reformed position and persuasion, that's fine. And before I go on, I do want to acknowledge the, the debt that I have uh, or that I'm in to scholars of the Reformed persuasion, people that I admire tremendously, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, John, John Piper, Jonathan Edwards, and the list goes on. And actually, when I wrote down that list of names and then proceed to tell you that I disagree with them, it does seem to me to be a little outrageous and somewhat pretentious. So at the end of the message, if you disagree with me, you're in very good company, okay? But let me try and unpack the reasons that I've taken the position I have, and then you can weigh and judge, judge last Sunday night, uh, and make up your own mind, okay? Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a Reformed document. In chapter 3, verse 1, it reads this. this. I'm quoting. God from all eternity did by the wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. 
So in summary, whatever happens, God willed it. It's got to be good because God is good. God is up to something. Um, God will work. And, and so you can see where that thinking comes from. It's deeply rooted in this Reformed position. One Reformed theologian illustrates the concept by saying this, God in his all-wise providence has before appointed what branch the sparrow sits on, what grain it picks up, where it shall lodge, where it builds its nest, on what it shall live, and when it shall die. No dust flies in a beaten road, but that God raises it, conducts its uncertain motion, and by his particular care conveys it to that certain place he had before ordained for it. Everything happens because God has decreed it to happen. Another one says, the final answer to the question why a thing is and why it is as it is must remain the same. God willed it according to his absolute sovereignty. The great Saint Augustine maintained that even when an innocent person suffers, quote, he ought not to attribute his suffering to the will of men or of angels or of any created spirit, but rather to his will who gives power to wills. So in this idea, God knows the future, not because he sees it, because, but because he has already ordained it. He's confident of the future because he has already determined what the future will look like. And it's here I want to show my hand and, and wave it and say, this is more akin, in my view, to Islam than it is to Christianity. In Islam, the response, Allah wills it, is the fatalistic response to the question, why did that happen? You talk to any Muslim, they'll say, Allah willed it. And I want to ask, what's the difference between that and the reformed position? I don't, I don't see a lot of difference between Allah willed it and Yahweh willed it. Question. Why would Jesus teach us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when according to this view, God's will is already being done in every meticulous detail, from the fall of a sparrow to the motion of the smallest particle of dust? Actually, further than that, I would want to say, what's the point of prayer at all anyway? What's the point in this view of asking God to be involved in or change anything when apparently he's already decreed before the foundation of the world how things will be? Your prayers, quite frankly, aren't going to make any difference or change a thing. And actually, many Reformed scholars will say exactly that. Prayer is not about changing God. It's about changing you. Your prayers then aren't going to make a difference. They aren't going to change a thing. It seems in this whole area of prayer, to me at least anyway, that God's playing charades. He's pretending to answer when in fact the only thing he's doing is doing what he always planned to do. So when Abraham was praying and haggling over the number of righteous people needed to spare Sodom and Gomorrah, we aren't talking about an authentic conversation here. God knew beforehand what he determined he would do and all he was simply doing was moving Abraham to the place where he would get to his already preordained number. I don't know about you, but that feels a bit manipulative to me. When Isaiah told Hezekiah to put his house in order because he was going to die, actually God knew beforehand that he was going to add 15 years to Hezekiah's life. That wasn't an honest or authentic conversation with either Isaiah or Hezekiah. This, this view of sovereignty that's so prevalent in Christian circles means that God gets what God's, God wants in every meticulous detail of life, period. 
That's what it means to be God. And for Reformed scholars, that's what sovereignty means. And to suggest otherwise is to mount an attack on God's sovereignty. It's to un-God God, as one scholar claimed. Now, we don't have the time, and I suspect many of you don't have the inclination, and I certainly don't have the skill required to unpack the implications of this view of sovereignty fully. This actually is a very brief and probably incredibly inadequate attempt to actually raise some questions and humbly say, you know what, oh, this ain't necessarily so. See, I would want to suggest to you that sovereignty does not, in fact, have to be, and in fact, it's better not to be seen as omnicausal. Now, all of you have heard of that word omni. You know, we put it in front of omnipotent. We mean all-powerful, omniscience, all-seeing. Omnicausal just means he's the cause of everything. And I'm suggesting to you that a better view of sovereignty doesn't see God in this omnicausal role. The implications of sovereignty being equated with omnicausality are, for me at least, frightening beyond belief. Because if God eternally decreed everything, then God eternally decreed the fall and all of the implications thereof. God's eternal decree is ultimately behind and therefore responsible for everything that happens in the world. How does that work with things like the Holocaust? Jonathan Edwards, by the way, Reformed scholar, unashamedly said yes to this. That is what God does. He, and I quote, he ordains evil so he can display his holiness in judging it and his mercy in forgiving it. I cannot get my simple head around a God who clearly has a passionate hatred for all that is evil and yet wills what he hates. This view of omnicausal sovereignty also means that your free will is an illusion. You cannot, no matter how much philosophical, theological gymnastics and magic you perform, be preordained, predetermined, and free at the same time. Those two things are logically incoherent. You are either determined or you are free, but in my view, you cannot be both. And the positions that try and make both, for me, are anything but convincing. Strongly reformed theologians believe that God preordained eternally those who will be saved and those who will be lost. And he does it for the full manifestation of his glory. I want to wave my hand and say that does not fit with the Bible. That, that God wants and created the means by which all people could be saved and wants all people to be saved. To say that on the one hand and then on the other to say, but God eternally decreed those who will be saved and those who will be lost. Not just that he foresaw it, but that he eternally decreed it. That is another matter entirely. It ain't necessarily so. The truth that God is sovereign in my view, does not have to mean that he's omni-controlling or omni-causal. I believe that we can affirm that God is absolutely sovereign and that he is omnipotent and, om and, and omniscient without saying that divine purpose lies behind every event. God could have, and in fact I'm suggesting that he did, create a world by his own sovereign choice in which beings are free to choose with all the implications that that freedom and choice entails, the possibilities of both good and evil. 
And once again, my hero, C.S. Lewis, as he so often does, puts it brilliantly. He says, God created things that have free will. That means creatures which can go wrong or right. Some people think that they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. I can't. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. From Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, you may freely eat of any tree, to Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Freely at the start, freely at the end, the backdrop of the biblical narrative is free will and not determinism. Looking for free will in the Bible, by the way, is a bit like looking for gravity. It is assumed everywhere and holds everything together, so you probably won't notice it until it's missing and you float away. Determinists will point to and want to discuss, among other passages, the Exodus passage where it says, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And they'll say, you know, Romans chapter 9, God does what he does. He makes some vessels for honor, some for dis, and so on. But they won't reference, for example, the at least 63 times that Jesus tells people to do or not to do something in the Sermon on the Mount that clearly assumes they have a freedom to respond. Now, I know there are some very difficult scriptures, but to see the difficult scriptures as the, the backdrop, the wallpaper for the biblical narrative, for me, ain't necessarily so. The kinds of comments that I made at the beginning, where people come to somebody who's just had a terrible thing happen to them and say, aren't you glad that God's got a purpose in it all, even though at present we can't see it? Those kinds of comments, sincere and kind as they may be, are soaked in that omnicausal view of God's sovereignty. And I don't think it's the best way to see either the scriptures or the character of God. Now, you might be sitting there and saying, well, Don, it, you know, that, that quote that you gave about the sparrow falling, it does say in Matthew 10, 29, that not a sparrow falls apart from your father's will. Doesn't that give some indication that he saw it all, knows it all, planned it all, ordained it all? Actually, that isn't what that passage says, by the way. It simply says, not one of them will fall to the ground without your father. It doesn't say without your father's will. Now, some translations put in that idea, but it's not in the original. It doesn't say that he causes or ordains the sparrow's death, but simply that he's aware of it. In fact, beyond that, I think this is an incredibly touching scripture. Not one sparrow falls to the ground without the father. In some sense, his heart falls to the ground with every sparrow that falls because he knows that death was never his intended purposes in his intended purposes. And rather than this impassable God who is not moved by anything that happens outside because he's perfect and he can't change, we, we have a God who's deeply moved by that. He's deeply moved even by the death of a sparrow because he knows death wasn't in the original purpose. That's why Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus can sob his heart out even though he knows he's about to raise him. He's deeply moved by death. You say, well, okay, all right, fair enough. But doesn't it say that all things work together for good and therefore by implication, it must be part of God's plan? Well, when people come to you and say, well, you know what, all things work together for good, they are quoting scripture, they're quoting Romans chapter eight. But what they are doing in that way is, is quoting it selectively. 
Because if you read Romans chapter 8, the context is Paul talking about Holy Spirit-inspired prayer and intercession. The Spirit groaning inside of us as he prays out through the purposes of God. And and Paul says, and by means of such Holy Spirit-empowered prayer, God's power and purposes are introduced into situations. And as a result, things that otherwise wouldn't have worked for good now do because Holy Holy Spirit-inspired prayer and intercession has intervened and changed things. And now a different result can be realized than would have been the case if circumstances had just been surrendered to. Given such prayer, God can and ultimately will accomplish His purposes in the lives of those who are committed to Him. Friends, that is a far cry from the comment, all things work together for good. It doesn't even say that. It says all things work together for good for those that are called according to his purposes and are walking in his ways and this Holy Spirit-inspired intercession and prayer is given room to. Classic. I heard parents of a pregnant teenager say, I'm not sure why God would let this happen, but it's comforting to know that he has his reasons. You know what? I feel for the disappointment. I feel for their hurt, I feel for their confusion, but unless we're dealing with another virgin birth here, God probably didn't have a whole lot to do with it. Now, can God work forgiveness, grace, and even ultimate good out of this situation? Yes, of course he can, when he's invited to do so. But that's not the same thing as saying he ordained or caused it, and all things will work together for good. I, I don't think he caused it. I hesitate to even say that he allowed it so that he could use it. What I would say is that he can overcome it. When he's invited into that situation, he can overcome it. However, and some of you know this firsthand, we have to live with the consequences of our choices, not his causation, our choices. And the consequences of sin can be brutal, even in the presence of mercy and grace. Ask David and Bathsheba. Yes, they were forgiven. Yes, ultimately, God brought something good out of that union, the beautiful son Solomon. But their first child died in infancy. David's household was ripped apart and became incredibly dysfunctional by virtue of David's failure. These events hardly qualify as God's wonderful plan for their lives. They were pardoned, but punished, as was Moses and Aaron and Samson and any number of other biblical characters. For God to punish these people for something that he himself ordained seems to me to completely lack justice and integrity. And people who are behind the notion that God ultimately is the cause behind all events, in my view, for what it's worth, fail to distinguish the difference between what causes and what God causes and what he allows, between what he plans and what he permits in a world that he's created. You say, well, Don, if God didn't originate them, if he didn't sovereignly ordain them, then from where did they come? Well, clearly, as I've already noted, from the free will of other beings. Sometimes the trials and hardships that you and I face, as in the case of David and Bathsheba, come from our own silly choices, our own sinful choices. We sow to the wind, we reap the whirlwind, as Hosea said. 
You know, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3 says, people ruin their lives by their own stupidity. So why does God always get blamed? Or the Scott translation says, yet that person is bitter against the Lord. Listen, truthfully, if God preordained their stupidity, why wouldn't we blame him? I mean, isn't he culpable? He planned it. He ordained it. We have some justification in being somewhat bitter toward him. You know, in the rock musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, Judas sings this heart-wrenching song where he addresses God and he says, you murdered me. I didn't have a choice in this. You ordained that I would be the one that would betray him. You're a murderer. And I have some sympathy for that cry if God eternally decreed the way all things would be. If, on the other hand, we are free and responsible for our own choices, then such anger and bitterness is misdirected. And many of us are blaming God for self-inflicted wounds. You know, I had a friend who became a believer in, um, about the time that we, that we did. He was, he was deeply involved in the drug culture of the 60s and 70s. And as a result of that involvement, he contracted hepatitis C when he was using dirty hypodermics. Um, he got saved. He became a Christian. He enjoyed forgiveness, felt a call to ministry, entered into ministry, became a really good and very much loved pastor. And he died in his early 50s from complications of hepatitis C. Well, did God ordain that? Was God up to something? Was this a blessing in disguise? Or was it the tragic circumstances of past actions? Now, I know that some of you are saying, well, Don, why didn't God heal him? Listen, I'm in deep enough as it is, okay? <laughs> I am not going that, down that rabbit trail, and quite frankly, I don't know. Full stop, period, close brackets, okay? Now, I would want to say I think God overcame and ultimately overruled in terms of my friend's eternal destiny. But that is a far cry from saying God eternally decreed that kind of end to my friend's life. We are living in a fallen world caught up in the backwash of Adam's rebellion. We are also caught in the crosshairs of a cosmic battle between God and lesser but still immensely powerful spiritual beings. And in my view, and I think biblically, the world we inhabit is not simply shaped by God's eternally decreed and meticulously controlled actions, but also by the rebellious wills of free people and free spiritual beings, variously called fallen angels, principalities, powers, elemental spirits, demons, you call them what you like. The mystery of evil is not located in God's mysterious eternal decrees. It is not found in his heart, but in the heart of fallen humanity and in the hidden spiritual world between humans and God. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament assume that something profoundly sinister has entered God's good creation and that at presently it is not as God intended it to be. You know, as I said before, the clear assumption behind the line in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is that things are not being done on earth as he would want them to be done. He didn't ordain this. He wants it changed. He has made every provision so that it could be changed. But he's also sovereignly made a world in which you and I make a difference to how it runs. 
Jesus' whole ministry rests on the assumption that he clearly rests on that assumption and he clearly functions with a warfare worldview. This is a world at war. He encounters a woman who's been crippled for 18 years in Luke chapter 13. He doesn't discern a secret divine blueprint behind her deformity. He sees her as a casualty of war. And he says, Satan has bound this woman, lo, these 18 years. He did not say, as some would who are committed to the notion of these things being God's purposes, he didn't say, well, you know, providence writes with long sentences and we'll just have to wait to heaven to get to read the answers. You know, some mysterious, we don't know why God is working this for his goodwill, but we can be assured that he is. Jesus calls it the work of the devil, an act of war, not the sovereign will of God. You know what? I don't believe we are living in our version of the Truman Show. For those of you who saw that movie, you know, Jim Carrey, with the whole of, you know, he lived in a big dome and everything was... Everything was ordained from the outside. He was living in a live TV show. He didn't know it. And everything was ordained and and strategized by people outside the dome. And he just simply lived out their purposes until even he came to feel this isn't right. Well, we're not living in our version of the Truman Show. I believe we're living in a world where free will makes a difference and God sovereignly ordained that that would be the kind of world we lived in. I do not believe that God pre-plans or micromanages the creatures of his world. John Sanders says, God has sovereignly decided to enter into a project in which he desires reciprocal, loving relationships and so has chosen not to control everything that happens. He wants a world filled with love. And in order to have that kind of world, you have to have free will or you've simply got the Stepford Wives. I don't believe that such a view limits God's sovereignty, that that God doesn't ordain everything that happens. I don't believe that's a limiting of God's sovereignty. It is not ungodding God. He's under no obligation to exercise all controlling sovereignty if he sovereignly chooses not to. You know, listen, God is sovereign over his sovereignty. He can choose what kind of sovereignty he exercises. And I think he's chosen to exercise an open, flexible sovereignty that honors you as a free being. Because he's fashioned creatures with free will, the reality is God may not get everything that he really wants. Now, that's a shock because reform scholars will tell you that God gets everything exactly as he wants. So whatever is happening to you, God wants it. Yahweh willed it. But the Bible seems to indicate God doesn't always get what he wants. And sometimes it deeply, profoundly grieves him. He saw the world that he had made in Noah's time and it deeply grieved him. Why would it deeply grieve him if he already preordained that that would be the way it was? Why does the Bible talk about God repenting, changing his mind? Saying through Jeremiah, you know what? It never entered my head that you would do this. God is deeply, profoundly shocked, it seems, by the free will that we exercise in our world. As I said before, he wants all people to be saved, the scripture says, and he has made provision for all to be saved and all to enjoy relationship with him. But the scripture seems to indicate that our sovereign God will not always get what he wants because all people apparently will not be saved. But this is the risk and the plight 
of a lover. And I believe overall God is a lover. Not an autocratic regent who gets exactly what he wants in every meticulous detail. You might say, well, Don, if he's subject to the will of his creatures, then actually there's no guarantee that he'll get what he wants, which is just what you said. How can we be secure in his ultimate purposes if we cannot be sure or he cannot be sure of the small details? So, Don, you're saying we all got free will. God has an ultimate plan that we all say will be realized. How do we know it will be realized if in the small things we can frustrate him? Can I say he may not be omni-controlling, but he's omni-competent. And I don't think anything will ultimately defeat him. And I don't think the position that I've taken lessens anything with regard to either his sovereignty or his glory. Let me ask you a question. Which requires more wisdom or skill? Governing creatures that are free and that can turn their back on you or governing creatures that are under my all-determining preordained counsel? Obviously the former. I, I, I do believe that God conducts a general rather than meticulous sovereignty. So well, how, 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 what would that look like? Let, let me try and illustrate it as I close from the quantum world. Some of you are saying, what world? The quantum physics world, okay? Now, some of you say, I'll try and keep away from that. Me too. Okay, me too. I once read a book on quantum physics. I, I'd heard all about quantum physics, and I wanted to know a little bit about it. So I got this simplest of books. It wasn't even quantum physics for dummy. It was called Alice in Wonderland. You know, Al, Al, no, it was called Alice in Quantum Land. So it was really, really simple. It had good pictures. And so I read this book on quantum physics. Before the book, I knew absolutely, totally nothing. By the time I'd finished, I just knew nothing. Okay? But I did figure this one thing out, or I found out, that at quantum physics level, at the subatomic level, Physicists tell us that indeterminacy and not predeterminacy occur at this basic level. So it seems at the subatomic level, the, the universe is a very open system and not a determined machine. And what happens at that basic level of existence actually cannot be predicted. Physicists can't work out, given speed and momentum, where this atom will be or go. They don't know how to predict it. It's indeterminate. Ironically, the aggregate of all of these random events at the simple level generates a highly predictable pattern at the higher level. So while we can't predict the individual items, when you Put all the items, the individual items together, you get a very predictable result. For example, the law of very large numbers says that when you flip a coin, you, you have no idea, heads or tails, 50-50. However, when you flip a coin a thousand times or 10,000 times, you can know very, very accurately it'll be 50% of one and 50% of another. So individually, who knows? Large aggregate numbers, predictable. Now, I'm pushing things a little bit here, but could it be that your free will actually can't be determined except by you and that God is not going to control you? And so in terms of you, the individual unit, your eternal destiny is up for grabs. Who would know? 
But in terms of the eternal purposes of God, in large measure, he's omnicompetent. He will get exactly what he has purposed. Now, that might not be a great example, but at least it's simple enough for me to get my head around that question of if God can't get his way in the individual, how do you know that he'll get it in the larger? I, I just think he's omnicompetent. He, he will be able to do that. Perhaps we could say God is faithful to see his purposes realized, but flexible as to how they might be fulfilled. So in closing, I think God exercises sovereignty. I think it is a general sovereignty. It is not a meticulous, omni-controlling sovereignty, despite having the power to control all things, that God voluntarily has limited the exercise of that power and chosen to create a world and creatures within that world with whom he can enjoy genuine, loving, responsive relationships. And that requires your freedom and not his control. So, does everything happen for a God-caused reason? Does everything happen because God planned it and God will work good out of it, come willy-nilly because he preordained that? I would want to put my hand up and say, it ain't necessarily so. Now, you might well be thinking, as I said before, that all that I have just said should be addressed with the phrase, it ain't necessarily so. And, and in some ways, I'm sympathetic. You know, the problem with theology is that it's humans that are doing it. Finite, fragile, fallen creatures trying to make sense of their creator. And the reality is all theology should be done with a limp. I, I love what Frederick Beekner says, made me laugh. He said, theology is the study of God and his ways. For all we know, dung beetles may well study us and our ways and call it humanology. If so, we would probably be more touched and amused than irritated. One hopes that God feels likewise. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.